0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M. L. Clark. My favorite god story is the story of Prometheus, It was one of the first I'd ever read in a book of Greco-Roman myths and legends, but it stood out from all the other stories of fickle and mean-spirited gods in that pantheon, and from stories of other wrathful and trickster gods that I would encounter in my exploration of other faith traditions. Prometheus was the son of Jupiter, one of 12 titans born of the union between sky and earth And while his aunt and uncle Cronus and Rhea shacked up to give birth to the Olympians we know today Zeus, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, Demeter, and Hestia, little nephew Prometheus created his offspring the way an artist creates their legacy, out of materials in the surrounding world. Out of clay, Prometheus made mankind, and I mean mankind specifically because the introduction of women is just as hateful in Greco-Roman lore as it is in the book of Genesis. Accounts differ about what then brought Prometheus to steal the fire of the gods and give it to mankind. At least one account suggests that mankind already had it, but then Zeus took it away out of anger over a trick that Prometheus had played on him with the contents of his animal sacrifices. If this myth is the most accurate, then Prometheus's sacrifice was more about setting something right that his bully of a cousin had done wrong. Others suggest that Prometheus, like his progenitor Enki from Babylonian mythology, was simply trying to protect and give aid to his creation. Either way, what I loved about this myth was that Prometheus put himself in direct peril from fellow gods to give his creation every possible advantage and was punished for it with an eternity of suffering, chained to a rock where an eagle would eat his regenerating liver every day by his absolute jerk of a cousin, Zeus. When I first read the Christian Bible at around 6 years old, I was not at all impressed by this god of the Israelites who had more in common with Zeus than Prometheus, punishing humankind, that is, for seeking knowledge and advancement. I would be a lot older when I learned about the pantheon of gods that had been amalgamated into the story of Genesis. The pantheon, for example, that looks upon humanity building a great tower and says, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech." I also now understand that this was simply a just-so story, a way in which the people of that time tried to make sense of the mystery of multiple languages in the human world. Genesis is filled with just-so stories, and in this way the story reflects a significant amount of curiosity among its original writers, which is not always sustained by those who read and adhere to those texts today. But back as a child, first reading Genesis 11, I still thought that Prometheus was way cooler, because he had put the development of his creation's full faculties first, instead of seeking to punish and then offer forgiveness to beings that had been made flawed. And yet, as an adult looking upon the state of our world, including what our uses and abuses of fire have done to it, I can't help but wonder if we needed something more than a Prometheus or his equivalent in many other faith traditions that also have stories of someone stealing fire for human advancement. It's not enough just to have this technology after all. We also need a guiding ethos that shapes how we use it. As more of our world burns every year due to climate change, and as we continue to cause immense personal violence with fires ensuing inventions, the question of our guiding ethos is by no means an idle one. We don't simply need the gift of new technologies. We need the gift of ideas and sustainable comprehensive philosophies. Philosophies that, like the most robust theories in scientific practice, actually account for and address all critical data about sentient life. And if the gift is not going to descend upon us from above, well, we really need to get a lot better at gifting it to ourselves. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're stoking some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around fire. Fire never really needed to be stolen, of course, because it happens naturally all the world over whenever arid conditions meet with sufficient kindling. Every summer, fire scores the boreal forests in Canada, and every year, as the dry season rolls across Africa, a band of agricultural burning does too. Recent research led by the University of Colorado Boulder published in the aptly titled journal, Fire, showed that 97% of wildfires endangering U.S. citizens and homes had been started by human beings. But this study would not have surprised readers when it came out in September 2020. Just days earlier, a couple in San Bernardino County, California, had set off a smoke bomb on a day 15 to 20 degrees above normal for the region to reveal the sex of their unborn child. The ensuing fire raged for 23 days, destroying 23,000 acres, raising five homes and 15 other buildings and taking the life of firefighter Charlie Morton. Even after 95% containment, It wasn't fully extinguished until November 16. Stories like this fire are easy to condemn because they have a simple culprit and a clear chain of events. But we're also starting more fires indirectly as a species because actions that governments and corporations in particular have taken to clear-cut forests, for instance, And to pursue energy policies that cultivate water shortages and endanger ecosystems critical to the mitigation of global warming are making it ever easier for one ill advised party trick to lead to such disasters. According to research like Surav Mukherjee and Asha Kumar Mishra's work in Geophysical Research Letters, December 2020. Compound drought and heat wave events, or CDHWs, have been increasing in frequency, duration, and severity in recent years, with the most significant changes emerging asymmetrically across the globe, in line with arid regions most affected by climate change. These CDHWs are not themselves wildfires, but they are the underlying conditions in which a simple spark can turn into a months-long blaze. Who needs the gods when you can simply dry out and heat up the land until it sparks? In South America, the results of these CDHWs have been seen firsthand. In 2012, Brazil's President Dilma Rousseff relaxed regulations that had been protecting against deforestation and a subsequent president, Jair Bolsonaro, leveraged these relaxed regulations to drive deforestation of the amazon back to levels not seen in over a decade. Some of that deforestation was affected through controlled burns that also drove indigenous persons from their lands. Critically though, Deforestation itself played a role in exacerbating CDHWs because tree cover is critical in generating and concentrating rain systems. No trees and you've got higher aridity and drought, which means in turn more frequent, long-standing and severe wildfires. It's not surprising then that the Amazon rainforest is now a CO2 emitter instead of a carbon sink or that areas with high deforestation rates are emitting 10 times the CO2 levels of less deforested areas. It's just disheartening. So many of our mistakes as a species are cascade failures and in ways that often yield the very real spectacle of our ecosystem's destruction through heat and smoke and flame. Did it have to be this way? Does it have to be going forward? Fire has been extensively constructive in natural ecosystems and hominin evolution. In the wild, fire clears layers of decayed plant and animal matter that are blocking new growth. It more rapidly returns nutrients to the soil, and it even assists in various floral and faunal life cycles. In our species, fire brought light, warmth, cooking, and better food preservation, superior tools weapons and dishware, new forms of sanitation for waste and dead bodies, and best of all, the ability to gather for longer periods of time in leisure, a boon for sociocultural development in general. However, for all that fire has done for our species, Western discourse around fire, especially for children, has fixated centrally on its dangers since at least the mid-20th century. Smoky Bear, the iconic symbol of forest conservation in the United States since 1944, went around in jeans and a campaign hat for five decades, telling folks, Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. In an ad campaign that drew strongly from World War II rhetoric by encouraging individual citizens to do their part against a greater foe. I remember units in school about fire prevention and response, including classic stop, drop, and roll drills and children's magazines encouraging readers to draw up a fire escape strategy with their families and children's TV advocating for keeping alarms and emergency supplies accessible and up-to-date. Even today, you can visit SmokeyBear.com, spelled S-M-O-K-E-Y, to learn prevention tips around selecting, maintaining, and putting out a campfire along with how to manage waste responsibly in your backyard, and flammable equipment wherever you go. Along with how to manage waste responsibly in your backyard, and flammable equipment wherever you go. The website now also lists a new kind of tip, how to protect your home against wildfire, through various grounds-related maintenance, which is telling unto itself, with respect to how much the world of fire prevention has had to adapt. These are all excellent skills and discussion points, of course, but they also share a problem that we explored in Episode 7 on the humanist carbon footprint. They all focus on what we can do as individuals to fireproof ourselves, our homes, and our belongings. Pointedly absent from Smokey Bear's website and a great many other approaches to incentivizing civilian action around fire prevention, is a much more proactive approach to related problems. In July of 2021, 22 misdemeanors and eight felony counts, including involuntary manslaughter, were set against the couple responsible for the initial spark in the September 2020 fire in San Bernardino County, California. These charges amount to up to 20 years of potential prison time, which makes me especially thankful that the couple's children have thus far been spared greater attention in related news. More lives were ruined that day than any mere statistic can address. Setting harsh criminal penalties on individuals is meant to be a deterrent, a kind of spectacle to make others think twice about their own actions as individuals, But in a world where deeper and more systemic environmental crimes have been driving up the number of CDHWs in general, we have to ask ourselves if there aren't more productive ways that we should be looking to combat the relentlessly increasing number of ruinous wildfires, and more productive acts of accountability that we should be elevating in mainstream media too. One of these, surely, is for adults and children alike to be taught a different relationship to the fact of fire, a healthy respect for it, instead of a healthy fear. Forests, for instance, are markedly safer from wildfires when they're not as densely packed as biodiversity rhetoric often leads us to believe. When there are too many root systems vying for the same resources in any given area, deteriorating soil quality accelerates drought while excess underbrush just makes for better kindling. This is why good forestry involves maintaining the forest floor by creating healthier living conditions for the hardiest of existing wildlife, ensuring that surrounding waterways are clear and using controlled burns to prevent catastrophic blazes. Educating citizens in more than campsite management and household survival plans doesn't even need a new ad campaign, and it certainly doesn't need another smoky bear. Why reinvent the wheel, after all, when we already have whole cultures whose conservation strategies are naturalized into their ways of life? I'm talking, of course, about indigenous cultures, many of which focus on maintaining clear waterways and forest floors, protecting wildlife habitats, and promoting sustainable farming, you can follow some such advocacy through qualitative groups like If Not Us Then Who, an indigenous awareness campaign directly partnered with forest-dwelling communities around the world to improve the way we advance narratives of coexistence with the land, or through quantitative research like Walker, Gorlick, Bacini et al.'s February 2020 article in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The role of forest conversion, degradation, and disturbance in the carbon dynamics of Amazon Indigenous territories and protected areas documents the key role played by Amazonian Indigenous groups in fighting climate change and makes express appeals for policy changes built on the paper's findings. It's not an either-or when it comes to such advocacy, I should add. Both academic and collaborative discourse have their role in adding to our overall understanding of any given issue and its potential impacts. Likewise, it's important to remember that not every Indigenous community or idea is intrinsically superior when it comes to conservation strategies. To think otherwise is to mythologize and fetishize the complexity of indigenous histories and experiences, and to suggest that many indigenous people have a kind of magical prescience about what the world requires. One of the most crushing examples of misaligned knowledges might now be coming out of Mongolia, where herders have largely been driven by climate change out of the steppes and into the cities, where their traditional knowledge as small group nomads is no match for the environmental devastation of concentrated living in smaller spaces, especially off-grid and with heavy reliance on coal for fuel. Pollution levels in their communities are wretchedly high at present, and the country is still grappling with next steps. But in the example of say amazonian indigenous groups which have been fighting deforestation pressures in brazil for decades and sustaining healthier forest ecosystems through mixed and rotational crop farming we can see just what it is about many indigenous traditions that makes the inclusion of their insights and their living advocates critical to rethinking our approach to fire what makes the difference that is is the more gradual and holistic approach to societal change that a great many of our Indigenous communities actively advance. Many human cultures promote tradition over progress, and many, conversely, are adamant that progress must come before all else. But Indigenous narratives far more commonly prioritize thinking about the outcome of various actions in a vocabulary that considers the impact of a given practice, traditional or progressive, not just for the self, or the family, or even the tribe, but also for the surrounding landscape. This shift in storytelling to include a broader cast of characters from the outset provides a level of flexibility in direct lockstep with environmental accountability that simple progress-driven or tradition-driven narratives in the Anglo-Western world rarely approximate. Western rhetoric, even when we're talking about how to save the world, is just too structured around the importance of individual action to protect individual property and life, and worries too much about how to shield ourselves from individual culpability for any disasters when they occur. But it doesn't have to be this way. We could still learn to see fire the way climate change is rapidly compelling us to. As a key part of healthy ecological life cycles, as an agent of both destruction and renewal, and as an intrinsic part of a broader portfolio of care for our surroundings. We could prioritize talking about fire whenever children learn about the water cycle, so that they gain a more holistic understanding not just of how water transforms, but also what happens to the landscape when water is not effectively cycling. We could incentivize park visitors to take part in campaigns that teach them to recognize the signs of unhealthy natural environments and how to advocate in their municipalities if they see similar levels of disrepair in local glens and glades. We could teach people to make the long-term impact soil quality and waterways a more popular talking point when considering the acceptability of new public and private infrastructure projects. It's one thing after all to visit an excellent resource like globalforestwatch.org and watch how the world is burning, both in normal seasonal cycles and in cycles exacerbated by climate change. But focusing solely on reactive relationships to the immediate specter of fire is not going to cut it, as the quote-unquote gift of fire is delivered unto humankind with increasing frequency in the coming years. We have an opportunity here to raise up a citizenry that sees the world's problems as more deeply intersectional charges laid against any individual fire starter can ever hope to convey and to honor and elevate in the process a way of thinking about the world that many indigenous peoples have been fighting and laying down their lives for for far longer than I have been alive. In the immortal words of Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire, but we also don't need to stop it. We just need to be our own Prometheuses, stealing fire back from the cycles of cascading destruction now all around us, and returning this most excellent tool to the sort of constructive uses it's held for us and the world in our past. This has been Global Humanist Chop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Chop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving.